Now Stephen, a man of full God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedom, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Sicily and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the, in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to the heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks, Bob. I told him to pretend that he was Derwin this morning and just with more hair. Not much more hair, Bob, but some more hair. Well, good morning again. Uh, it's so good to be together. And uh, today we're jumping back into our series uh, in the book of Acts that we were looking at in the fall, and we're, we're in chapter 6 only, and we're not going to go to the, the very, very end. There's, there's the, the extended uh, missionary journeys of Paul. We're not going to uh, spend any time there this time, but uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to jump into the, the story of the earliest followers of Jesus. Uh, we're going to look at some of the, the themes that, that come out of, those, uh, of that early church experience. And we'll see again in the examples of those first followers how following Jesus turns the world upside down and how, how following Jesus for us actually has the potential of, of radically turning our lives upside down. Why don't we pause and just invite uh, God to speak to us this morning. Father, we, uh, we gather in the name of Jesus. We make no bones about that. And uh, this morning... Um, we've been singing about him and hearing about him, and uh, we want to we come to know Jesus better, even through this story of Stephen, Lord. Would you, uh, God, uh, speak to us, we pray. Lord, you, you have a word, I believe, for every single one of us today. Would you ignite it? Would you light a fire within us that we might hear your word, we might grow, we might change, and we might become who you've made us to be? We pray this today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, today we're uh, going to take a look at these couple of chapters that uh, explore really the life of Stephen, one of the early church uh, followers. He was one of the first uh, Jesus followers who gave his life for his faith. He, he literally died in the name of Christ. And it, it leads me to this question, how do you respond to the possibility of dying because you are a follower of Jesus? I, you know, think about that. How do you respond to that? How do you answer a question like that? Um, if you're like me, I find I don't think about that question very much. I don't know how to honestly answer that question. It seems kind of theoretical or hypothetical. Very unlikely, actually, where we're living that I'll probably, that I would give my life for my faith. Even though at the same time there's thousands of, of people who are martyred every year because of following Jesus. Uh, millions of Christians live in dangerous contexts where it's, it's really difficult to be a Christian and they, they actually suffer because they're Christians. But that's, that's actually not the case here in Canada. We don't expect this morning that a gunman is going to break into our service. I, I, I hope not. But that's not been a common experience uh, in Canada. And so... It's quite difficult, I think, to answer that question. So where we live, it might be important to ask another question, to kind of lay along the side, alongside the question, would I die for Jesus? The question, would I live for Jesus? Would I really live for him? And, and actually, probably, you've got to back up even a little bit further and, and ask the question, you know, what am I really living for? What's really driving my life? And that's kind of the question I want to ask today. What's the story or, or vision of life that you're living for? What's the compelling vision and story that's, that's driving your life? I'd say every single one of us is, is living for a story, for a particular vision of the good life, and it's important for us to recognize this because the story that we live, uh, live out of has a lot of power. It, it shapes our lives. It, it shapes our pursuits, our identities, uh, everything about us. What story are you living for? Let me, let me give you an example. Some of you would know who Rihanna is. Rihanna is a uh, pop superstar, one of the best-selling artists of all time. She'd fit in the top 10, I think, from what I understand. Um, in 2009, something tragic happened to Rihanna. She and her boyfriend, Chris Brown, also a popular musician, had an argument while they were uh, driving in their car, and uh, he loses it, and he beats Rihanna to within an inch of her life. Ter terrible, terrible circumstances uh, brought world scorn on Chris Brown. But it's interesting, uh, Rihanna, uh, Rolling Stone later did a, a piece on Rihanna, and um, they're quoting her mother saying this about her, that she's just this strong and independent woman. That's her, that's her story. <laughs> and, and even after this incident, this is what Rihanna confessed. She says, I put up my guard so hard, I didn't want people to see me cry. I didn't want people to feel bad for me. It was a very vulnerable time in my life, and I refused to let that be the image. Because her story is she's strong. She's, she's independent. So even in this crushing moment of her life to, to appear weak, she says, I couldn't do that. She said, I wanted people to see me. I'm fine. I'm tough. And how telling is this? She says, I put that up till it felt real. She was saying, this is my story, this is my identity, and this is how is, is going to shape my behavior. This is how it's going to shape my response to crisis. 
it shaped the music she put out and the clothes she wore. Um, she said this, in the, the author said this in this article, she adopted a permanent sneer and dressed all in black and released Rated R, a collection of tracks about murder and revenge. Story. The, the vision of, of who you are and what you're living for, it drives us, it shapes us. It doesn't just drive us as individuals, it drives organizations. It drives entire institutions. In fact, it, it drives nations, cultures. I, I mean, think about uh, America has one of these driving stories. Do you know what it's called? Anybody? The American dream. The American dream, which is the right to pursue, you know what? Lib life, liberty, and especially the pursuit of, of personal happiness, right? That's the American dream. Fascinating. Um, McLean's last year released an article where, where they basically said that the American dream had moved to Canada. That actually, America's not filling the American dream very well. Where the American dream is actually getting more fulfilled is actually in Canada. This is, this is what they said. This is, we're living it more than they are. They said whether it was due to geography or history or maybe even policy, we as Canadians have arrived. Everything America once aspired to be, we now are. Not only have we achieved the fabled American dream, we're arguably among the safest, healthiest, happiest human beings to ever have existed, ever. It's crazy, and there's some truth to that. He, he, the article goes on to say, and yet we complain about you know, a five-cent carbon tax on our Tim Hortons, and those kind of things. It was interesting how, uh, how the article seemed to say we squander this uh, amazing privilege that we have in Canada, but it's actually helpful to, for us, I think, to think about what forces, what stories are shaping our lives culturally. Um, what's, what stories actually are being sold to us? The Super Bowl this afternoon. I mean, um, I know some of you that uh, you don't watch the Super Bowl for the football, you watch the Super Bowl for the ads. Because the American ads are unbelievable. You know that for this year, for a 30-second spot, the average cost to, to advertise for 30 seconds at the Super Bowl is $6 million. It's a huge amount of money. What, the question is, what are they selling us? So I thought, I thought we'd do something a little interactive this morning to, to help us think about this. Because um, it matters. Because I, I'd say we're going to be all impacted by these stories that we're getting these messages sent to us all the time that have these story themes along with it. So I want to throw up some product taglines uh, on the screen, and let's brainstorm what story they might be telling. Let's take a look at the screen. Apple, think different. You're more powerful than you think. What, think different, what do you think they're trying to communicate? Just feel free to, to shout out your thoughts on that. What, what storyline is, is Apple tapping into here? Individualism? Yeah, absolutely. The power of the individual. Anybody else? Acceptance of everybody. The rainbow. Yeah, absolutely. Inclusive. Creative. Anybody else? You're more powerful than you think. Uh, everybody's got this thing that they, they, they're here to achieve. I think it's interesting that they have this thing, think different, but what they really want you to do is buy their product like everybody else, right? It's, 
It's interesting, right? The, this whole idea of be unique as long as you follow everybody else, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of what they're, what they're uh, pushing. It's really, really quite something. Interesting, just take a look at the apple. Uh, it's really back to the garden. That's an image of, of the power of knowledge. You know, that's the bite of the, out of the apple. That's Eve's apple. I mean, you, you maybe never seen that before, but that's part of uh, their idea of this, this opening up to, to the knowledge of good and evil. Um, Audi has a, has a great one. Take a look at this. Anybody speak German? <laughs> Seriously, anybody speak German? Al, can you just read that, uh, that, the thing that I would massacre otherwise? Wursprung durch Technique. And, and tell us what you think it means. Those are hard words. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the answer. Skip to the next slide. Advancement through technology. That's what that means. Uh, world famous uh, Audi ad, advancement through technology. What are they selling? What's the storyline? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Good, good point. Anybody else? They think they have the best car. They absolutely do, I'm sure. I'm not saying they have the best car, but they think they do. Anybody else? That's right. That's right. They're, they're, they're really tapping into this whole idea that technology will improve our lives and make our lives better, more meaningful, more fulfilled. All that, it, it's, it's a very dominant storyline in advertising in our day, right? Absolutely. That's right. That's exactly it. Very powerful part of advertising. McDonald's. Do you remember what it is? Take a look. I'm loving it. What are they trying to say here? <laughs> yes, absolutely. But what storyline are they selling us? What, what do you think their stor the storyline is behind an ad like that? It's a little more subtle. Happiness, the desire for happiness that we have, that, that somehow they want to associate that product with that hunger in our hearts to, 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 to be happy. I, I think it's kind of funny um, that it's McDonald's. Live, it, it's really saying, live for the, the now ignore the health warnings around fast food and live for the present, right? I'm loving it. I mean, I'm loving it right this moment. So indulge is really kind of one of the storylines they've got going. Nike, yeah, go ahead and fulfill your indulgences. Uh, Nike, just do it. Take a look at that. What are they saying? I, I think it's a reoccurring theme, but feel free to shout it out. Let go of your inhibitions. Yeah, sure. Quit procrastinating, do it. What's the storyline? What's the storyline there, though? If you do it, you'll be happier again, right? Another common storyline. Anybody else? I like the spoof of this. Look at the next slide. That's what it really is saying. <laughs> Just buy it. Just buy it. Okay, L'Oreal. L'Oreal uh, began uh, with an ad campaign back in the 70s, because I'm worth it. It morphed into because you're worth it. What are they saying? 
What, what, what storyline is kind of going on? What, what vision are they trying to present there? You deserve more? Sure. You deserve glamour. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's it. I think that's the, 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 the biggest powerful one is, again, this narcissistic storyline of our day is that it, everything revolves around you, your happiness, all those kind of things, right? Um, you wouldn't, uh, I don't think this would sell as much in places like India, which is a far more communal culture. Uh, this is a very North American Western kind of sales pitch. Uh, I like uh, Victoria's Secret spoof on this. Take a look. Lowering a woman's self-esteem since 1977. Very, <laughs> that, that was very accurate. Very, and, and maybe a lot of the, the, the beautiful, uh, the beauty-oriented ads are doing exactly that. Uh, finally, Coca-Cola. They've had a pile of, of slogans over the years, very effective advertising. Um, Coke adds life. Coca-Cola, the most recent one is up on the, on the top, Open Happiness. It's the real thing. Things go better with Coke. What are they selling us? What's, aside from the drink, what, are they, what image are they selling us of the good life? Happy? Satisfaction? You can buy happiness? Yeah, open happiness. I do enjoy Coca-Cola. I like the, the Pepsi spoof. I don't have it up here, but uh, the Pepsi spoof, it basically says... Um, Pepsi, when they don't have Coke. That's the, the spoof on. <laughs> but I mean, talk about promising a, a great story, aren't they? Like, I mean, look, look at what they're, they're promising us. We, we, we shouldn't be naive about the power of these cultural pitches that are coming our way. Uh, example, diamonds. Do you know that diamond engagement rings are actually a relatively new phenomenon that back uh, prior to the 1950s, Diamond, someone's like nodding, yeah, I wish I'd known that. Yeah, they sold me. Um, prior to the 1950s, it was rare for a man to ask a woman to marry him with a diamond ring. It was something that was reserved for the, the uber rich. And then in 1947, uh, an ad copyist at De Beers Diamonds um, came up with a little phrase that changed that. Diamonds are forever. Diamonds are forever. And uh, within four years, by 1951, eight out of every ten brides was wearing a diamond ring. They, they considered that to be the most successful ad campaign in terms of changing an entire culture's values from one little phrase. These have power. <laughs> Back to our point, uh, re really, we've got to be thinking about this because every person, every, every organization, every country is living in light of a story, their particular vision of what matters in life. And, and whatever story we're living for, whatever vision is driving us, it shapes us in every way. And ultimately, here's the, here's the important point, ultimately it controls us. Uh, Rebecca Manley Pippert years ago wrote about this about how whatever controls us is actually our Lord. 
And the whole idea that none of us actually controls ourselves. We're controlled by whatever is, is Lord of our life. And whatever Lord controls your life, it's not just how you live your life, it's what you're willing to die for. There's lots more cultural examples of this. Uh, Lance, Lance Armstrong, I'll give you, give you one. Um, really competitive, known for being a really competitive cyclist, right? A winner, champion. Uh, known for his fight against cancer. And maybe now he's best known for cheating in his sport, right? Known for, quite profound what he, uh, what he said. He says, I like to win, but more than anything, I can't stand the idea of losing because to me, that equals death. That, that's lordship language right there. I mean, anytime you, you tie something to death, that's lordship language. Armstrong's story was that, that he was a, that the being, was being a champion was the most important story. That's his controlling, shaping story. It's the story that he believed about himself, and it was a story that, that he was willing to, to lie for. He was willing to cheat for that story. He was willing to even die for that story. He was controlled by his story, the Lord of his life. And this is a heart deal for all of us. We all have, have these stories going on. We have a vision. It's it's captured our heart, and if it's true for us, if this is all true, that we each of us are, are driven by a story, we ought to be asking the question, how do we know who or what is really controlling us? What is our controlling story? How can we know the story or the Lord that is controlling our lives? I, w- I want to uh, give you some discerning questions, and these are in your notes. Notes were in your bulletin this morning. So you don't have to write these down. Just listen to these. You don't have to, to look at them. Just listen to these discerning questions that you can ask yourself that can help us discern what is Lord of our lives. Uh, early on in your conversations with people, what do you want to make sure people know about you? Early on in your conversations with people, when you meet somebody new, what is it that you would like them to know about you? What preoccupies you? What, what do you daydream about What do you think about when you are just kind of naturally gravitate towards thinking about when you're by yourself? I think it was Timothy Keller who said, what a person does in their solitude is really their religion. That's a helpful one. I found that one very helpful in my life. What what makes you feel your Um, self-worth? Of what are you most proud of in your life? If there's anything, what would you like to be best known for? What if you lost it or failed at it would cause you to not even want to be alive? What if you lost it or failed at it would not even want you to live because that thing is so central, so important to you? Here's another really key one. What do you most worry about? Or maybe another way of phrasing that would be is is what are your bad dreams? (laughs) What are they all about? What do you look to for comfort when things get bad or uncomfortable? What goal or desire unreached would really seriously consider you to cause you to consider turning away from God? I, I think questions like these can help us discern what driving story or narrative is really Lord of our lives. Um, great preacher martin lloyd jones put it this way says the true lord of your life is anything that holds such a controlling position in your life 
that it moves and arouses and attracts us so easily that we give our time, our attention, our energy, we give our money to it effortlessly. We don't even have to think about it. And, and you know what we're going to see in, in Acts chapter 6 and 7 in Stephen is a, a beautiful, powerful witness of, of the one story and the one Lord that is worth living for and ultimately worth dying for. It's like in this passage we get a front row seat on, on God's vision of what the good life is. The story of the Lord that's better than any other, better than life itself. So let's kind of quickly look at Acts chapter 6. We're not going to read the entire passages here, but Acts 6, beginning in verse 8, says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Spirit. The Spirit gave him as he spoke. We get this, uh, this brief picture of Stephen here. We know from earlier in the chapter that Stephen is, is this uh, guy with a great reputation. He's not just a good guy. We're told that he's full of wisdom in the Spirit. And here in verse 8 to 10, we see how he's doing signs and wonders. He's talking about Jesus to people in such a profound way that, that they just don't know what to do with him. And, and in the book of Acts, we don't really hear anything about Stephen at all until Acts chapter 6. And, and uh, he's gone by Acts chapter 7, but it's obvious that he didn't just pop out of nowhere. He's this uh, key leader in the early church. In fact, he's the first listed as one of the seven that the apostles selected to be special servants in the church. And, and so he, his witness in his, his, his life is just powerful. But one of the things I want you to notice, Stephen's, Stephen has loads of parallels with the life of Jesus. The same things that happened to Jesus happened to Stephen again and again. I mean, in the end, when he's being killed. Did you notice that when, we, when, when Bob read that scripture? What does Stephen say? He says, into, my, in, into your hands, God, I commit my spirit. And more profoundly, what does he say? He says, do not hold. He says, uh, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Echoes of, Father, forgive them, for I, they know not what they do. Uh, another, another example of his ministry being so powerful was his, how his critics responded in their frustration by going behind his back. And we see in verse 11 it says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And this mob scene erupts. It says, So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified... This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Then this great little weird line at the end. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Again, I think another echo of Jesus. Uh, Jesus. When did Jesus glow? Do you remember? on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there with a few of his disciples, and he shone with such brilliance. And you're getting kind of a, a clue here that this is a similar kind of moment. And we're told that these instigators stirred up false witnesses, and these are the accusations they brought against Stephen based on the text. Basically, that he was speaking against four centers of Israel's faith. That he was blaspheming God, he was speaking against Moses, 
He was speaking against the law and against, finally, against the temple. Um, in, in case you don't know the context here, these would have been huge deals in Israel. To speak against these things in that day, in Israel's time, would have been a big deal. And you know why? These are the big rocks of the story that these people were living out of. They're saying Stephen is blaspheming against, again, eerily similar to the kind of accusations that are leveled at Jesus. It's like Jesus is, is back on trial through the life of Stephen here. It's pretty fascinating to think about. And, and the charges of Stephen, just like Jesus, are blasphemy, teaching a different religion, teaching a different Lord, a different salvation. And then there's the high priest he's introduced, and he's like the judge in this, what you might consider this to be like a supreme court. And in verse eight, uh, ver chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? Um, no secret that my wife and I, we love watching movies together. And uh, your, your movie, when, you, when you're married, your movie habits, I think, often influence one another. And so for me, I, I have uh, become okay with watching, I say just okay with watching romantic comedies. I quite, haven't quite got to the chick flick end of the spectrum yet, but romantic comedies are good. And for Angel, she likes Lord of the Rings. Say no more. I'm happy. I mean, that's a good, you know, we've got more, more these important things covered. Um, we've, yeah, absolutely. The grounds of a good marriage. Um, Probably one area where we didn't have to ever argue about when it came to movies, it was like we, we both have always loved legal dramas, right? Good, good law courtroom stories. Anybody like those kind of movies? Uh, the good, I like the books, too. I'm a John Grisham fan and all those kind of things. But, but I, I love how, how there's the twists and turns that happen in a case. I, I love how, how oftentimes the, the case can be overturned by a great closing argument or some last you know, introduction of some piece of evidence or, or whatever it might be. And so I think of some of the movies that I've loved, uh, 12 Angry Men. How many of you have seen that one? 12 Angry Men. Or there'd be uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Some of, that, some of you, that's your era. You go, that's your defining legal drama. Uh, for me, it'd be A Few Good Men. You know, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. And some of you young folks are like going, I don't even know who Jack Nicholson is. How sad. Yeah, you're my token young person this morning. Thanks, Nicole. Um, and then, of course, maybe today would be The Lincoln Lawyer or something like that. But, but I, I, I love these courtroom dramas. And what you have in Acts 7 is one of the best courtroom scenes probably in the history of the world. I mean, they, they drag this guy full of power and wisdom, and they accuse him of something false. And his response is so brilliant. We see this, uh, his, his defense, Stephen's defense, comes in the form of a sermon. sermon. We see it from verse 2 of chapter 8 all the way through verse 50. And uh, he takes the accusations against him and he preaches the sermon where, where he takes the salvation history of Israel found in our Old Testament. And this is what the driving storyline is of the people who are accusing him. And he takes the story they're living out of and he shows them how they've actually gotten their own story wrong because they misunderstood Jesus. It's, it's just brilliant what he does. He tells them, he says, you're actually the ones living out of the wrong story. You're actually the blaspheming ones because you, just like your forefathers before you who rejected every prophet who came, um, you rejected the true Lord. That's the essence of his sermon. 
we don't have time to walk through all this, and I, I just encourage you to read this on your own time, but I'll just touch a couple of high points for you this morning. He starts with Abraham, because Abraham is the start of God's people, the nation of Israel. And he talks uh, about the patriarchs and, and Joseph. He talks about Moses. He talks about the law. And he ends up talking about the temple. And again, he talks about the very things he's being accused of speaking out against. And he recounts to them from their own story that in such a way that points out to his accusers because of their misunderstanding and rejection of Jesus, they've actually misunderstood their own story. It's simply brilliant. And in essence, Stephen's sermon is, because I understand Jesus, I understand your story better than you do. And that's what he tells them, because I understand Moses, it was actually in, in verse 37, was pointing them towards Jesus, because I understand that Jesus is the true fulfillment of the law. Understand that, that Jesus and now us as his people are the, the true temple of God. And, and, and I'm the one who's actually living in accord with, according with the story of Israel and her God, and you're not. And so it's a really compelling argument. I don't want you to miss the drama of this moment because um, just as, as Stephen confronted his hearers in that day, this message confronts us. <laughs> He's saying the story that we're living for. For them it was the Old Testament story, but whatever story we are living for is incomplete and misdirected and is the wrong story if Jesus is not at the center of it. That was true for them, it's, it's true for us and for our stories. The story we're living, whether it be religious or irreligious, and the sobering thing is for them, it was an extremely religious story that was causing them to miss the, the one true story. But if your story does not have Jesus at the center of it, it's a misshaped and, and wrong story. It's not the story to live for. It's not the Lord to live for. You know, one of our biggest deals as a community of faith is actually to, to keep on reminding each other to keep Jesus as the center of our stories. We do this. We ought to do this when we gather on Sundays. We've got to do it when we, we gather in groups, in our relationships, in our marriages, and in our friendships. Let me ask you, let me ask you this question. Just get really personal here again this morning. Is Jesus generally and day, to, day by day, the center of your story, the story that you're living. Stay-at-home moms, let me pick on you for a brief moment here. How is Jesus at the center of your, your daily story, the, the routines that you live in day by day? My, my wife has been self-employed and, and has, in effect, been a, a stay-at-home mom. She knows what it's like to juggle priorities and juggle jobs. And, and so how is is Jesus the center of the story of your daily routine as a stay-at-home parent or a stay-at-home mom? Students, how does Jesus transform your education, your, your university, your high school narrative to something more significant and, 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 and meaningful? Empty nesters, what might Jesus want to do with your now finally quiet home? Retirees, um, what does it look like and mean to have Jesus at the center of your retirement plan? And for those of us who are, who are working, who have jobs, how does, 
Jesus connect to your job? How does Jesus connect to your vocation? You know, how does your faith, how do, how do your faith and, and work integrate if you're in construction or you're a school teacher or you're a janitor or you're an engineer or you're a musician or an artist? Married couples, what does it look like as a couple to have Jesus in the center of your marriage relationship? Singles, what does it look like to, to, to have Jesus dominate the storyline of your singleness? I, I think that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, how Jesus ought to dominate the story of our singleness for those who are single. Even those of you who are commuters, how, how does Jesus take the horror story that might feel like your daily commute to your workplace, how does he take and, and redeem that and transform that? That's a daily story that some of you live by. So on and on, let me ask you, just day by day and, and in general, is Jesus the center of your story? If he's not, if, if, if not our stories and our lives, no matter how religious, they will be misshaped. I, I think these are conversations we ought to have as a community all the time, asking one another, because quite honestly, um, I don't know about you, but I, 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 I buy into the ads, and I get down a, another storyline that's not the one true storyline for my life. We have to be talking about this. We have to be thinking about this. Because we can fall into bondage into these things, and so we need brothers and, and, and sisters in Christ who can kind of speak into our lives and help us see. If you're not a Christian... Um, let, let me talk to you just for a moment here. Every single one of us, and you included, was made to look to a story and to a Lord for meaning, for rescue, for love, for purpose, for freedom. It's what the Bible calls salvation. But the story you were made for is a story with not, not with your desires at the center of the story. You're, you're not made for that kind of story where you're the superstar. This is what Stephen would say. This is what the Bible testifies to. And that's why... Uh, as Christians, we, um, we ought to be the most joyful people around because we've discovered, and some of you, uh, as you sang that song, we sang that song better. Uh, um, how did it go? Jesus is better. Uh, some of you sang it with con great conviction because you've lived another story and you came to a point in your life where you're restless and frustrated feeling empty and uh, somehow you met Jesus and that storyline changed and it changed everything and you're living a different story now and every time we sing about it on Sunday morning it's it's reinforcing <laughs> that that Jesus is indeed better than the story you once lived and that this is the story that you're made for I got to wrap up here um, this is a, a good message. I love this uh, passage, but Stephen's story doesn't seem to end well, right? His case does not get overturned like we might hope it would. The people don't repent and change their ways. Um, he speaks boldly, though, with disregard for the consequences. And in verse 54, it tells us of their response. It says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. And then in verse 58, we're told in their fury that they drag Stephen out of the city and they stone him to death. Another, again, similarity to what happened to Jesus outside the city limits. But I don't want you to miss this. In between those verses, we read this. 
But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He, he sees Jesus. He's got this vision in this moment of, of Jesus, uh, the ascended Jesus, who's at the right hand of God, the Father. Now, it might seem kind of random here, but Jesus at his own trial here said, listen, I'm going to go to the right hand of the Father. That's what Jesus said at his trial. What, Jesus, what, what Stephen sees is a validation that Jesus is who he said he is. More than that, what he sees is, is Jesus, a picture of him ruling next to the Father, reigning with all authority. And here, here Stephen is. He's being judged and, and ruled, lorded over by these, these rulers. And he gets a vision of who is the true Lord of lords, who is truly reigning, his Lord. How encouraging for those who are being persecuted to have that kind of vision and picture. I think that, that's why it's recorded for us in some ways is to remind those who are suffering, but not just for persecution. Anyone who's living in, in just kind of trouble, where, where you're in a place where your circumstances are not what you would want them to be, suffering in some kind of significant way, this reminds us that, that we have a Jesus who one day we'll make all things right. He'll turn every crooked, straight, crooked, crooked path and make it straight and transform that. So even as we're looking at a crooked story, Stephen is looking up and he sees Jesus and he knows he's reigning and he knows that, that one day this reigning Jesus will indeed make all things well. What a hope we have. Because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Just to, just to close us here, what is Stephen's life teach us and what does his death teach us teaches us that there really is only one story and one lord and there's only one gospel who's really worth living for and ultimately worth dying for is that the story you're living for is jesus your lord have you, have you thought about this, uh, about what you're really living for? That's the question I hope will echo throughout your life this week. That, that you'll be asking truthfully, am I really living for Jesus? Is he truly the Lord of my life? It's a massively important question. And, and, and the good news is that Jesus has made it possible through his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension He's made it possible for us to enter into his story, to live it for ourselves, a story with Jesus as our Savior and our God. Jesus himself made this very clear. He said this, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What good is it to gain whatever our misshaped stories and, and false lords are promising, yet, yet lose our, our, our souls, our very lives? So if, if Jesus isn't your Lord, if you're not living out of the story of his gospel, if you have a, a false Lord, if, if God puts his finger on something that is a false story the invitation from jesus i think the invitation stephen would make to us this morning if he were here is to lay aside those false storylines and, and to forsake them and to transform 
Transfer your hope and your trust from whatever you're living for besides Jesus to him. He stands ready to receive us. He, he, he loves us and he says, come to me. Come join my story. I, I've purchased for you and let me be the Lord I already am for you whether you realize it or not. Come see, like Stephen learned, that my love for you is better than life. Why, why don't we pray? I'm going to invite the, the team to come up, but uh, let's, would you bow your heads with me? Father, we pray this morning, we give you thanks but um, for speaking to us today. But we pray that you would give us the grace we need to see the other lords that we worship, the lords that we allow to control our lives, to see the very stories that we're living for and living out of that are misshaped and therefore leading us horribly astray. God, help us see these things. Help us see it, God. Make it clear. And we pray that you would help us to turn from those things and to transfer our hope and our trust from those lords and stories to you. Jesus, the fact is, is there's no other Lord like you. No Lord loves us like you do. These other lords betray us and harm us. They enslave us. No other Lord loves us like you. So God, help us to see that. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. That you just didn't live us, uh, leave us here to live lives blown about by false lords, but you came and showed us that you are the Lord, the true Lord who loves us. And we thank you for Stephen. We thank you for the grace that you exhibited in his life and for the way he challenges us so profoundly 2,000 years later. Lord, we humbly ask you to lead us into repentance. Teach us, Father, we pray. Teach us, Lord, to deny and forsake our other lords that we might follow you and find you in our lives, we pray. And Lord, I know this morning some are in difficulty or trouble. Um, they're going through it right now. Maybe uh, it's not as severe as Stephen, but it feels so severe. Give them the capacity this morning, Lord, to look up to the heavens and to remember that you're reigning, that Jesus the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he has all things in hand, and he promises the best of ends to, to our stories. Give us that hope in you that one day, God, we will see you make all things well through the reigning of your Son. Oh, God, we pray. We renew our confidence in you this morning, we ask. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.